Welcome today to a very beautiful experience. Today I'm going to talk about divine rest for human restlessness. But before I do so, I want to introduce to you somebody who is very special to me, somebody who has made a difference in the lives of thousands of people around this world. And that's my wife, Beverly. Would you please welcome her today? This morning, I want to show you something amazing in this little glass box. I'm sorry that you won't all be able to see it clearly, but this is a little cone the size of an olive or a grape. The amazing thing about this little cone is that it can grow a tree up to 360 feet tall, which is comparable to a 30-story building or higher than the Statue of Liberty. Of course, they are the coastal redwoods north of San Francisco, about a three and a half hour drive, which my husband took me to just a few weeks ago. He knew that I'd wanted to go there for a long time and he very kindly drove us up there. As I stood looking at the Cathedral of Redwoods, a feeling of awe and reverence came over me. Awe for their beauty and majesty and reverence for the one who made them. You know, I wonder, why did God make such a small cone for such a big tree? I would have thought, big tree, big cone, like this or like this. But then, as I thought more about it, just imagine hundreds of these hanging from the trees and then falling from 360 feet, whoosh. They could hit you like a missile and could give one the proverbial hole in the head. And we don't want that, do we? And that's just my theory, of course, but I think it's one of the reasons God made them so small. But you know, there's a great lesson to be taught from this little cone. Ever feel insignificant? When God is in control, he can grow us into something very significant and very beautiful. Here are a few things I've learned about the coastal and the Yosemite giants. Both are in the Sequoia family and both are referred to as redwoods. The Yosemite giants are Sequoia dendrons and are the largest in volume, that is the thickest around the waist. And of course they've got a very long waist and they are also the longest living things in the world, living for over 3,000 years. Now their coastal relatives, the Sequoia sempervirens, are taller than the ones at Yosemite, but they only live up to a mere 2,000 years. And just think about it, when Jesus was born, some of these trees were almost, if not already, teenagers. Both species of redwood share the distinctive title of California's state tree. One of the reasons the redwoods live so long is because their bark is up to one to two feet thick. 
and it contains a large amount of tannin which is resistant to fungus diseases and insects. The trees of the forest are the lungs of our beautiful planet. While they absorb the bad stuff, the carbon dioxide, they give out the good stuff, the oxygen, which is what, of course, what we need if we're going to breathe. Sadly, many of the forests throughout the world have been and continue to be destroyed. That's why it's a good thing to plant a tree, if you can, in your backyard. Just make sure you get some help from your nursery or garden centre, because you wouldn't like to plant a seed and have a sequoia grow, would you? And this is one important way we can teach our children that we are God's caretakers of this wonderful planet. In today's fast-paced world, we are increasingly subjected to air, visual and noise pollution, especially those of us who live in the big cities with millions of other people. Why we do it, I don't know. It's so unnatural. And it only intensifies the already often stress-filled lives that we have. This is why we need places that possess natural beauty, fresh air, and tranquility, so that we can refresh our spirits. If we want to remain physically, emotionally, and spiritually balanced, we need to take a walk in the park, or in the forest, or in the mountains, where we can content, contemplate this wonderful heritage that God has given to us. When you look up at the stars tonight, just remember that some of the redwoods living today were looking at those stars at the beginning of the last millennium, just past. And let's thank God for the wonderful things his hands have made. I'll be leaving for Russia, Ukraine, and Siberia. I want to ask my friends, particularly on the 3ABN network, to pray for me at this time. I'm going to Irkutsk in Siberia, where a year ago we baptized 800 new believers. The news out of Irkutsk is not good. This week it got down at Lake Baikal to minus 72 degrees. Minus 72. In this area, the people have been without light, like in California, and also without heating. People are dying. There is a mining town 200 miles north of the city of Irkutsk, and people have got no heating at all. They're running out of food. Minus 72 degrees. Already 40 people have had some of their limbs amputated because of the conditions. I'm going there. People have told me not to go because it's too dangerous, it's too cold. In fact, you dare not go outside if the wind is blowing when it's minus 72. But I'm going just for a few days. In fact, I'm going for two weeks. Those people are there for the rest of their lives. These are our believers. Many of them are short of food. Already the pastor of that church that we left there, you know him, Norm, 
is unable to continue his work because he's gone blind. And some say he went blind because of lack of nutrition. Here in this country, the United States of America, we should never complain. We ought to count our blessings because we're the most blessed people or among the most blessed people on the face of this earth. But I want you to pray for us as we fly to New York and straight across to Moscow and then down to the city of Kiev in Ukraine where I'll be taking meetings next week for all of our new believers and then across 500 miles to the east to a city of one and a half million by the name of Dnipropetrovsk where we are planning to run a campaign later on this year. I invite you to come with us. This great crusade that's going to commence May 12, I think it is, go through to June 9. Plan to come with me. Then we go back to Moscow, there for a day. Then we take a night flight. Leaves at 6 in the, mo in the evening, travels through the night, gets in at half past 4 the next morning, 3,500 miles across Siberia. It's going to be cold. People say, why go there this time of the year? Because they need us, that's why. We go when the need is the greatest. And we're going to go now because the need is the greatest. I urge you to catch with me the vision of reaching out to a perishing in a lost world, my friend. Then after taking meetings there, we're going to get on Aeroflot again and fly 3,000 miles west to Nizhny Novgorod, take meetings, and then a few miles to Dzinsk, and then the train overnight back to Moscow and catch the flight, Delta flight back to New York and then back to this land by his grace. We should not say it's going to happen. We should say if it is the Lord's will because we never know what's going to happen. But I want you to pray for us at this time. Pray for us as we try to get through customs because those countries are moving further and further from the United States again. So I want you to pray for this special time. Today, I want to welcome every person here in this church, in this beautiful church, and everybody watching on television to a most beautiful experience. An experience that few people today understand and appreciate. I want to invite you to an experience which is going to be like an oasis in the desert, an island in the sea, a garden in the city. I have traveled through parts of the Sahara Desert it's very hot, it's very dry, 110, 120 degrees. You can't live there for long without a lot of water and food. But if you're traveling through the Sahara Desert, there's nothing more wonderful than to see in the distance an oasis. After the heat and the dry of the desert, you come to an oasis and there's date palms, there's sparkling water and there are tents, there's food. I want to talk to you today about how you can discover an oasis in the desert. Also, an island in the sea. I've never been shipwrecked. That's one blessing I haven't had yet. But can you imagine a person who is shipwrecked? He's in a little boat. The sun is blazing hot. His skin is burning up with the sun. He's covered with salt, has virtually no water. He thinks that death is coming. And glory be to God, he sees an island. They come to the island and it's covered with a forest and this sparkling streams and there are coconuts and there are friendly natives. An island 
in the sea, like an oasis in the desert, a garden in a city, city that pulsates with traffic, noise, tension, stress. I was visiting the city of Damascus a number of years ago. It's a city that is filled with people, cars, pollution, donkeys, and cannibals. So much noise. Then I was taken to a door that opened onto the main street, went through the door, walked 50 yards. There was a garden. No noise. There was a guest waiting with some beautiful nectar, apricot nectar. Outside it was hot, noisy. At last there was a place of refuge. I'd come, my friend, to a garden in the city. An island in the sea. An oasis in the desert. Today, I want to introduce you to one of the most wonderful experiences that a human being can have and that most people do not understand and that most people do not appreciate, but I want you to have it today. I want you to have an experience of peace and joy and calm and tranquility in the midst of stress and tension, an experience that gives you love and warmth acceptance, I want to give to you a little heaven that you can have once a week. In fact, you can have it in miniature every day, but I want you to have it in its totality once a week. Would you please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And verses 1 to 3. And everybody watching on television, you know I'm an old-fashioned Bible preacher. Please go get your Bibles. Follow me in your Bible, Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 down to 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 down to 3. The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Do you ever think about the day when God made the world? I've been studying these, thing, these themes and these things the last couple of years. I've taken up the study of geology because I want to be informed about these things. We now know, not from geology, but we know for a certainty that the universe came into force, into being about 10, 11, 12,000 million years ago with a tremendous bang. They call it the Big Bang. And then later on, out of this, God fashioned this planet. And then in Genesis chapter 1, you read of six great pronouncements by the Almighty God as He speaks and He sets in force 
tremendous powers of creative power and out of chaos there comes cosmos. And then at the very end of this time of creation, God makes the crowning work that he's ever done. That is, he makes a man and a woman. And after he makes this wonderful man, whose name was Adam, and this beautiful woman whose name was Eve, he says, I'm going to give you a gift from my own heart. And he says, I'm going to give you the Sabbath. And he says, it is the Sabbath. It is a special gift for you because on this day, the seventh day, I rested. I was refreshed. And God says, I have blessed this day and I have blessed it for all eternity. I'm going to show you today that the Sabbath is an oasis in the desert, an island in the sea, a garden in the midst of a bustling city. And I'm sure that many people who are watching on television have been depriving themselves of the nectar that God has prepared for them. I want you to know this today because sometimes we misunderstand this. God is not demanding anything. God is not demanding anything. God is offering something. God wants to offer you something which is so wonderful and so marvelous and so filled with joy that you're going to say, why didn't I do it before? And how can I share this good news with my friends? Would you please come over here to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 and verse 28. And of course, as you know, Jesus our Lord was a Sabbath keeper. We would expect this because Jesus made the Sabbath. Matthew 11 and verse 28. And in the context of a conflict over Sabbath keeping, Jesus gives these words. Would you please notice the words of our blessed Lord. Matthew 11 verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus turns to the people of his own day and to us, and he says, I know the hunger inside you. I know the emptiness inside you. I know the weariness that you experience every day. And he says, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I want to appeal to you today. I want to appeal to every person today. Man, because of his fallenness, is empty and hungry. You are without Christ. Why do people turn to drugs, alcohol, illicit sex, party around the clock? Why? Because it is a hidden crying out to fulfill a need. But I'm here to tell you there is a better way. There is a better way, my friend, and the better way is not through these practices that I have alluded to. There is a better way. I remember a sermon I heard when I was 17 years of age preached by an Englishman whose name is Ron Vince and he preached on this topic, the God-filled blank. He said, In every person here today, he said, there's a person here today and within you there is a blank. I said, he's talking to me, a teenager, 17. He said, there's a blank in your heart today and you're never going to have that blank filled until you come to know Christ. And if you come to Christ, he will fill the blank and he will take away the void. I did it as a boy. And I've had rest ever since. You can too. The reason you are here today and the reason you're watching on television is because you know that what I'm saying is the truth because inside every person there is an emptiness that nothing can fill but God himself. And then in this same chapter, in the same context, Jesus goes on to another subject and most of us have failed to read these verses in the context of Jesus offering the world rest. Would you notice Matthew chapter 12? We read on from that last passage, my friend. Matthew chapter 12 and remember the verses before spoke about this divine rest for human restlessness. Chapter 11, 28, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now you come to chapter 12. At that time, please notice this. Please look at me. These words are important. Jesus said, at that time. The Bible says, at that time. At what time? At the time when Jesus said, come unto me, and I will give you rest not at some other time. This did not happen a few days later, but Jesus is talking about the crying need of the human heart. He says you need divine rest for human restlessness. And then it says in these cryptic words, at that time, when Jesus is describing the void in the human heart and the need for divine rest at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath the day of rest. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Who were these Pharisees? 
The Pharisees were the professional religionists. They were the people who had all the answers to the problems of everybody else, but did not have the answers to their own problems. They were the critics who sat in church and they said, if only people would do what we say, but they did not do anything themselves. They had a solution to the problem, but the problem was them. And the Pharisees who were right-wing religious fanatics, the most respectable people of the days of our Lord Jesus Christ had thousands of rules. In fact, they had more than a thousand rules about keeping the Sabbath. For instance, it was a sin to eat an egg that had been laid by a fowl on the Sabbath. Why? Because the fowl had been working. It was a sin, they said, to turn on a, and they still say, to turn on a light. A sin to go over this line. You could go a Sabbath day's journey, but you could not go any further. They had more than a thousand rules. But none of those rules came from God. They came from the hearts of religious professionals who knew everything about theology but nothing about people and nothing about God and nothing about their own stinking selfishness. And while they paraded themselves in their pomposity with all the arguments, they were hollow, shallow, foolish little men. And Jesus took them on. Verse 3, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is, is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You see, these people back there didn't have a clue about the purpose of the Sabbath. Now I have people who come to me today and they say, Pastor Carter, are you not aware of the fact that Jesus broke the Sabbath? I say to them, then you must be a Pharisee. Because the Pharisee said this about our Lord. They said, oh no, Jesus broke the Sabbath. I said, you're taking the very words out of the mouths of the Pharisees. The Pharisees never kept the Sabbath in their whole lives. You see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
And the Pharisees had devised 1,512 rules about keeping the Sabbath. So they were good in telling other people what they ought to do. Have you met people like this? People who are always good and telling you what you ought to do. But they are conspicuous when there is work to be done. The party of the Pharisees is alive today. Jesus taught the people that the Sabbath was not a burden, but an expression of God's rest. And so he said, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus taught the people that the seventh day Sabbath was an illustration and a type of the rest that you find when you find the Creator God. Amen. Jesus, our Lord, was the great liberator, my friend. And Jesus came to liberate the human race and he came to liberate the Sabbath. As I mentioned last week, Jesus, we are told, it is recorded, performed seven miracles on the Sabbath. Seven miracles. And these seven miracles illustrate the meaning of the Sabbath. He here, he healed a paralyzed man. The man had lost hope. He had been paralyzed for 38 years. Why did he do this on the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath is a day for redemption. It is a day when paralyzed people, paralyzed in their souls, are released. He found a blind man. He healed him on the Sabbath because the purpose of the Sabbath is to heal us of our blindness. There was a demon-possessed man and are there not demons today that are ravaging the hearts of men? He cast out the demons on the Sabbath and said, peace to you. The Sabbath is to drive out the demons in our hearts. There was a woman with a raging fever, Peter's mother-in-law. And Jesus took away the fever on the Sabbath to teach that the Sabbath day is when the fever of this world's passions is stilled. There was a crippled woman. She had been crippled for 18 years. He healed her on the Sabbath to teach that on the Sabbath day, our limbs are straightened and our crippleness is taken from us so we can walk and run and praise God and be whole. There was a man with a shriveled hand. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day to teach us that the only cure for shriveled humanity is coming to Christ and having the rest that only he can give. Your life and my life is desperately shriveled until we come and experience his rest. And the Sabbath is a part of that rest. 
I would think, my friend, that these people who were healed on that Sabbath never looked upon the Sabbath as a burden. I think if you ask the woman who had been a cripple, what do you think about Jesus and his keeping the Sabbath? Was the Sabbath a burden? She would say, the Sabbath was when I met Jesus and when I was healed. And the blind man said, it was the day I met Jesus and I could see. That's what the Sabbath represents. The problem is that some of us have been keeping the Sabbath as Pharisees, not as people who belong to Christ. Christ was the liberator. Did you know that the Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, is called the Lord's Day? If you turn to your Bible and look in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, and I know the verse, and you know it, John says, I was in the Spirit, and please complete it. I was in the Spirit, say it again. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So there is a Lord's, what does it say? It is not, my friend, the Lord's hour. Did you hear this? It is not, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's hour. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's hour day. That day commences at sunset Friday. How do I know the Bible tells me so? Because in scripture a day does not commence at midnight but at sunset. Leviticus 23 verse 32 tells us that a biblical day goes from sunset to sunset. And the Lord's day is not Sunday. You say, but the church fathers called it Sunday, the Lord's Day. I don't care what the church fathers called it. I'm more interested in what God called it. You say? And if I can't get my doctrine out of this book, I don't want it. Isaiah chapter 58 says, the Sabbath is, here are the words, my holy day and if you call the Lord's holy day honorable it says the Sabbath is the Lord's day the Sabbath day commences at sunset I want to teach you something today so that you can taste the nectar when the sun goes down in the west on Friday, God's clock says, now we start to celebrate the Lord's day. Let me teach you and make some suggestions. We should not be out around the town doing our business or mowing the lawn or doing the housework. We should be sitting waiting to welcome the Sabbath. And we welcome the Sabbath with song. And if you've got a piano and somebody can play it, sit around the piano and sing some wonderful songs. Even if you sound funny. 
and then read some texts out of the Bible and rejoice and be glad because the best of all the seven has arrived. And on this day, as on no other day, I am called to enter into rest with the Savior. God's holy day. Friday night meal ought to be a great meal. Did you hear me? You ought to prepare for it well in advance. Some Sabbath keeping Christian families light a candle to celebrate the Sabbath. And then after they have welcomed in the Sabbath and thank God they've turned off the television, even the weather channel and the history channel and they've turned off the radio and they have, glory be to God, shut down the computers. (laughs) If you're stuck in a computer all through the week, shut it down. Don't say I'm doing missionary work. Shut it down. Be glad that you have the authority to execute the computer. Shut it down. So that when I call you on Friday night, I can get through. (laughs) (laughs) And then have a glorious meal with fellowship and laughter and worship. And then maybe get some music videos and sit down and sing the songs. And people say, oh, look what I've got to give up. Goodness. What sort of insanity is this? What sort of insanity? You know, and most people don't know this because they don't know the ancient languages. But in the New Testament, the first day of the week is called, you know what it's called? Not called Sunday. It's called the first to the Sabbath. God's people had their lives all pointing each week to the Memorial Day, to the oasis. They were saying, I want to get to the oasis. I want to sunbake on the island in the sun. I want to go into the garden and and drink the nectar. So Sunday is the first to the Sabbath. Never call the Lord's Day. The first to the Sabbath, Monday the second to the Sabbath, the third to the Sabbath, the fourth to the Sabbath, the fifth to the Sabbath. Now the children are getting excited. The Sabbath is coming. How long, mummy, until the Sabbath? Well, today is the fifth to the Sabbath. Now tomorrow is the preparation day. Come with me to Leviticus 23 and verse 50 and onwards. And it talks about the preparation day. And of course, this is a verse that talks about Jesus, his death, and his disciples. Luke 23, are you enjoying church today? Mm. Well, that's good. Leviticus, what did I say? Oh, Luke 23. Then did I say Leviticus? Well, just ignore me sometimes. Uh, Luke 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, 
who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was, say it with me. Loud, come on. In what day was it? Come a little louder. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb, how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment on the first day of the week, on the first of to the Sabbath, it says. And so Jesus is placed in the tomb on a day which is called the preparation day. And the next day, Saturday, is the Sabbath. And the next day is the first day after the Sabbath, it says in the Bible. But there is, the Bible says, a preparation day. It is a day when we get ready for a holy time with God. It is a day when we clean up the house and vacuum the carpets and get the clothes ready and polish the sh shoes. And so when the sun goes down, we are waiting almost breathlessly to say, thank God, thank God it has arrived. I want to see the hands of the people in my church today who are blessed in keeping the Holy Sabbath. Put up your hands if you're blessed. Put them up high. Wave them around if you are blessed as a testimony today to the beauty of the Sabbath. Now, would you please come to Isaiah 56? Isaiah chapter 56, dear friends. Isaiah 56 and verse 2. Isaiah 56, everybody turn to these texts. Isaiah 56 and verse 2. Blessed, do you know what the word, just a moment. Do you know what the word blessed means? Do you know what it means? It means happy. Do you want to be happy? We read about the Beatitudes. Here is a Beatitude. Blessed. If you want to be blessed, here is the way. Blessed is the man who does this. The man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. How slow we are. We think we're smarter than the creator God. God has placed a precious blessing in the keeping of this wonderful Sabbath. We need it. There was a young woman who was suffering from eye strain. She did a tremendous amount of writing. She went to the doctor and he said, young lady, your cure is simple. Take your eyes off your work and every now and then look out the windows and look out towards the mountains. And if you do this, you will not have eye problem. 
My friend, we are suffering from eye problems. We need to take our eyes off the work and come and worship God for a full 24 hours, the Lord's day. As Samuel Bakiaki said, the Sabbath is a window on eternity and a holiday worth God. So that's Friday evening. We start it. We have a wonderful meal. We sing. We're happy. We're glad. We kill the television. And then on Sabbath morning, we get up bright and early. Yes, we do. Because we're going to go to church and we're going to go to Sabbath school and we're going to study the Word of God. It has been said that great eaters and great drinkers are seldom great at anything else. We might add great sleepers are seldom good at anything else. And so we shake ourselves and we go to church and we listen to Bob Pease and Shondor Caracas and other people as they expound the Word of God. Why do we do this? Because Jesus did. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, the Bible says, he went to Nazareth, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And Leviticus 23 and verse 3, you can write these verses down. Leviticus 23 and verse 3 tell us that the Sabbath day is a holy convocation. Oh, you can go on a camping trip anytime you like. But on Sabbath... We ought to go to church. You say, is that a commandment of God? Yes, it is a commandment of God. The Bible says the Sabbath is a sacred assembly. And let me tell you why we go to church. We go for a number of reasons. But the most important reason is not just to greet our friends, but I'm glad that we can greet our friends. I'm glad that we have friends. And we need fellowship, but we go to church primarily as a congregation. You say, I can do it at home. You cannot. No man can be a Christian by himself. That is against all the laws of God. We go to church so that corporately we can worship God. I'm going to quote from this book, reading it last night, a book on worship, Worship His Majesty. We go to church to praise the almighty and self-sufficient one, the entirely holy three-in-one, the merciful, the righteous, and the just, the all-knowing and the all-wise, the essence and fountain of love, the creator and Lord of hosts, the absolute and changeless one, the transcendent and the eminent one, the true and the faithful one, who in all his wonder, grandeur and excellence has chosen to love us and has sought to redeem us and has sent his son to us, Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. He has become our father through the new birth. He is made possible in Christ. He was born of the virgin who lived sinlessly, taught truthfully and died vicariously for mankind whose blood and death are the ransom price paid for me, providing completely for my eternal salvation. 
He is the son of God who literally and physically, physically rose from the dead, who was ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and who has poured out his Holy Spirit of power upon us that we might live in grace both now and forevermore. Let the Father be praised. Let the Son be worshipped. Let his Spirit be manifested among us. This is why we go to church. We don't go to church, I might add, to sit as critics. We don't go to church to act as Pharisees and to put down our brethren. We don't go to church to see what Mrs. So-and-so is wearing today. <laughs> we go to church to worship God and we worship him in thankfulness with joy and happiness. Church ought to be a time of joyful happiness. And if it is not written on your face, it is because it is not written inside. Joy and thankfulness, adoration and obedience to his word. We come bringing our tithes and our offerings. We do not come empty handed. And we come to hear the word preached. Because it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I invite you to come and worship us next Sabbath at 100 West Duarte Road, Arcadia, California. Come join me. Then we should have a beautiful Sabbath lunch. If anybody has an extremely beautiful, tasty Sabbath lunch, I'm ready for an invitation. <laughs> so let me tell you, after church, we greet our friends we should have a beautiful meal in a quiet place. I have sometimes made a mistake. I've gone to a place where it is bang, 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 loud music, and you've got to shout to be heard, and they've got to shout so you can hear them. That is not Sabbath keeping. We ought as much as possible meet in the homes of our believers. They should not be the same believers who feed the multitude because that encourages laziness and selfishness. Every person ought to take turn, take visitors home and should take them into a garden in the city. Amen. Take them to an island in the sea, Amen. an oasis in the desert. No, we don't keep the Sabbath according to the traditions of the Pharisees. In Colossians chapter 2, it talks about let no man judge you in meat or drink or in the keeping of a Sabbath day. And people say that means the Sabbath is abolished. I notice those people are still eating and drinking. <laughs> but if you read in the context, it talks about the traditions of men. Is the seventh day Sabbath mentioned in Colossians 2? Yes, it is. In what context? The traditions of men. So we do not keep the Sabbath according to the tradition of the Pharisees, old or modern. But we teach and keep the Sabbath according to the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We're told in the scriptures 
the Sabbath day is the rest day God, because God rested on that day. And then the Sabbath is the blessed day because God blessed it. Didn't bless any other day. That makes it the best day. And for some of you folks watching here today, the Sabbath is the test day. People have asked the question, do we need a Sabbath law? Do we need Congress to enforce the Sabbath law to save society? Because there's a relationship between the desecration of the Sabbath and the deterioration of society. So they say, do we need a Sabbath law? Do we need a Sunday law? No, because that wouldn't be a Sabbath law. And the government needs to stay out of religion anyhow. But we do need a Sabbath law. We do need a Sabbath law. We do need a Sabbath law that is enforced. And we have it. We have it. It's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Not to be enforced by the fist of the state but to be enforced by love in our hearts. Because the Bible says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And all his commandments are beautiful. Therefore, I invite you today to a beautiful experience, to an oasis in the desert, to an island in a stormy sea to a garden in a bustling city. There remains therefore the keeping of the Sabbath for the people of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the peace that Jesus gives. Open our hearts today that we might realize our own personal spiritual need not to fall into the sins of the Pharisees where we become proud, think we know everything and we sit as correctors of other people. But help us today just to open our own hearts and to see our own personal need. And today our Father help us to accept the divine rest for our human restlessness that comes when we come to Christ and accept the forgiveness of our sins and help us to understand this glorious truth about the glorious Lord of the Lord's day. Help us by your grace to walk in the footsteps of our master and to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As we're praying here today in our church, every head bowed, every eye closed, how many will raise a hand and say, by God's grace, because I love God, I want to keep the Sabbath as Jesus taught it. Would you raise your hand if you can say that today? I want to keep the Sabbath as Jesus kept the Sabbath.
as Jesus taught the Sabbath. Our Father, we accept today this beautiful, magnificent, wonderful gift. The best of all the seven. We worship you, bless you, praise you, lift up our hearts and thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you.